0: Hello and welcome to Let the Bird Fly, a podcast about living freely in a world given back to us. Wade and myself, Mike, we're here in the studio and we're here with our next Winging It session on the life of Martin Luther. Our last episode, uh, we heard about Luther escaping from the Diet of Worms and making his way um, into the Wartburg Castle where he uh, hid out under the uh, pseudonym of Junker George. Um, was unhappy to be all alone there, um, but uh, threw himself into the translation um, of the New Testament into German. Um, and today we thought, well, the next step is to talk about him coming out of Wartburg uh, uh, and, and traveling to Wittenberg because things are changing there. Um, but we want to maybe take a little bit of a pause and talk about um, something that is going to be a growing concern going forward in our Winging It sessions in the history of Luther, and that is people taking Luther's ideas, grabbing onto them, and running with them maybe without thinking things through, Or taking them further theologically than Luther ever intended. And so Luther's going to have kind of an issue here to deal with this Reformation that has maybe gotten a little unwieldy in places, including uh, his hometown in Wittenberg. And so we're going to talk about things like Anabaptism and this Vickal uh, Prophets. And we're maybe going to be a little bit out of the timeline, but that's okay, because we'll get back into it. And we're going to talk about a character named Carl And and uh, he uh, friends of Luther, uh, butted heads against Luther were eventually reconciled, I think at the end. Um, but the backdrop of, of this, we might call radical reformation. I think is important to get down, and, and uh, this is this is much more Wade's topic than than I am having studied uh, some post Lutheran history as well, and so he's going to do the heavy lifting as usual. So, um, why don't we define anabaptism and um, radical reformation? You want to take those two terms on and see what you where you go.
1: Sure. And the thought is, as you mentioned, Mike, to kind of focus, and I think we can largely stick with the. Um, timeline, but what I'd like to hit on, especially today, is kind of these Wicca prophets and the beginning of radical reform and Anabaptism, and then maybe next time we pick up, or in one of the next few sessions, I'm going to hit upon Karlstadt, Mm because I think um, Karlstadt probably deserves his own episode, um, because he's going to have contact with just all sorts of branches of what's happening with reform. But if we, if we want to talk about anabaptism, uh, anabaptism is just uh, the putting together of, of two words. Um, Ana, uh, the, the notion there being the Greek uh, again, um, <coughs> excuse me, uh, bad allergy week. But, um, and then baptism, we can obviously see baptism there. And what these were, um, anabaptists were people who baptized people again in the view of the mainline reformers meaning people who were baptized as infants were later baptized again as adults um, because the Anabaptists thought infant baptism was invalid. That'll be interesting because Karlstadt, for instance, will kind of be between these two camps. Karlstadt did not think you should re-baptize people who were born as infants, but he thought the practice of what um, American Protestant Baptists today would call um, believer baptism was better so if he had his druthers, you wouldn't be baptizing infants anymore necessarily, um, but you wouldn't rebaptize someone who was baptized as an infant. But the Anabaptists will say infant va- baptism is invalid. Um, there's different streams of Anabaptism. Uh, there's Anabaptists who will be pacifists. We have some of the descendants of those here in America. Um, if you ever go to Union Station in Chicago uh, and ride Amtrak, you will see both Mennonites and Amish there. They're both um, uh, descendants of what became more pacifistic strains of Anabaptism. We don't have a lot of violent strains of Anabaptism left because it turns out it was a really bad life move <laughs> um, to be a violent Anabaptist. And they were able to kind of unify the Catholics, Protestants, and Reformed um, in opposition to them. And usually uh, the rebellions hard, were a hard
0: on. task
1: yeah. to do. Yeah. They were true uniters uh, in that sense. But um, the second term, Radical Reformation, is a a term that's applied to basically reform that usually involved Anabaptists, although it didn't have to involve Anabaptists, but it's opposed to magisterial reform. And what magisterial reform means is uh, that in certain places, reform was carried out either through or with the approval of the magistrate, the ruling class. So in Switzerland, for instance, in Zurich, um, the city council uh, is involved in reform. In Germany, this tended to be the prince is re- uh, involved in reform, although in some imperial-free cities like Nuremberg, you would have had a city council that was very active as well. Um, in England, uh, this is through the king, obviously, with Henry's uh, reformation that he will bring Henry VIII. And so this, depending on the the region, you could have a different form of government, but it was magisterial um, if it, it basically Um, was a conservative reformation in that it worked through the existing social and political order um, and it was done with state supervision or approval at least most of the time with state supervision or approval. So Luther's reformation would fall um, under the title of magisterial reform although that doesn't mean Luther was just a lackey of of the state. Obviously sometimes he did his own thing as we've already discussed a number of times here. Radical reform just comes from the the Latin root, hopefully, right, that is the Latin root, radix, from the roots. Um, think of a radish, it go, grows in the ground. Radical reform means they wanted to kind of uh, change everything from the roots up. Um, and this usually tended to not only include religious aspects of things, but also um, social and economic. Um, the Radical Reformation oftentimes focused on what we might today call the working class um or uh the the poor maybe in general um the working poor uh oftentimes peasants but not always peasants and uh it's very interesting um during the cold war in east germany but uh also um in the soviet union some of the radical reformers were actually held up as being um proto communists thomas munzer especially was celebrated um, by the East German government um, because he opposes uh, the oppressive bourgeois, um, the, you know, kind of establishments of both church and state, prince and church. Um, as you know, those governments were not fans of religion or Christianity, but there is often in radical reform this intermingling of political, religious, economic, social interests, and a desire for um, greater change. In that way, it's not completely um, foreign to, uh, you know, movements throughout history where politics and religion have been wed. Um, even in our own lifetime, uh, Mike and I have seen, for instance, right, the Moral Majority or Christian Coalition which were not radical reformers, I'm not saying that, but kind of this melding of Christian doctrine and then a concomitant desire, is that the right word, concomitant? Um, Desire to see um, appropriate with that doctrine or worldview, maybe is a better word, um, social, political, economic change. Um, Very An early kind of forerunner of some of these things, and this was not, it would be very anachronistic to think that the Zwickau prophets would have thought of themselves as Anabaptists or radical reformers or anything like that. But uh, during Luther's time in the Wartburg, so to keep the timeline complete, and um, I don't know if you have the timeline in front of you there, Mike, but um, his his time in the Wartburg again is, what, 15? May
0: 1521 um, through fifteen twenty some part in 1522, let's say March 1522, I think.
1: Okay, and so. During that time, there's going to be these Vickau prophets who will come to Wittenberg and really perplex Melanchthon. He's not sure how to deal with them, and he's kind of the, to fill the vacuum, he's one of the people, the the leading reformers in town. Obviously, Karlstadt's going to try to fill that vacuum, too, but um, Melanchthon will actually ask the elector to have Luther come back to deal with this. Excuse me. (coughs) And, uh... Luther's not going to come back to deal with it, but he will write and give Melanchthon counsel. But these Wickeau prophets are kind of an interesting instance of what happens here, and so I thought maybe we could talk about them a yeah, little yeah, bit while today. You're,
0: while you're while you're opening, he's opening his book for our, for the ones who are not watching on ESPN two. I've um, got four books here he right does. now too. He's very impressive. I don't have anything. I was unprepared for this. Uh, just a little bit to, since I got the timeline there. I don't know if this came into their uh, mind or not, maybe or not, but in 1521 December, Pope Leo X dies, and you don't know who's going to be the next pope. Um, there's just a sense that things are moving, and for uh, for any kind of radical, it is throw the whole thing out and start from the root, right? And so Luther is going to consistently say no that's a bad deal that's sectarian that kind of stuff there's and at so, least
1: like an off the gridness to it yeah
0: and um so you just it's it's a it's an interesting time I mean if like in one year the most famous rebel there ever was who was changing the world was all of a sudden vanished you know and he's somewhere away and then uh the pope dies you know and it's it's just an exciting time and I think it just fits with that kind of maybe a radical notion that this is our time to do something, root out what's bad, start over kind of thing. Um, And like you said before, you can see that in a lot of different movements, even in religious movements in our own day.
1: Yeah. And so maybe just briefly two things that um, Heinz Schilling notes in his biography of Luther, uh, Martin Luther in an age of upheaval. And it's a biography I've enjoyed and I've gone back to a, a number of times in front of me today. I have the The Reformation Theologians uh, edited by Carter Lindbergh which is a phenomenal volume if you want to get kind of brief sketches of the various um, reformers from Radical Reformation, Lutheran Reformation, um, Swiss Reformation, English Reformation. Uh, Martin Luther, Renegade and Prophet by Lyndall Roper. I know a lot of people um, don't like that one but I kind of like it. I think there's times where she maybe makes (coughs) Judges Luther by contemporary standards in an unfair way but overall I I enjoy it. Um, And then... uh, Obviously, Martin Brecht um, wrote three volumes. I have volume one or volume two, Martin Luther, shaping and defining the Lutheran Reformation, <clears throat> excuse me, the Reformation, 1521 to 1532. But one thing that Schilling says that I think is helpful, he notes there's two important things about this uh, first encounter with the Zwickau prophets. And one is, um, as Mike already noted, he uh, Luther kind of for the first time is going to have to react to the Um, what Schilling calls incipient anabaptism. So this is like Luther's first encounter with anabaptism. Anabaptism is going to grow much more in Switzerland and southern Germany that's more influenced by Zurich and Zwingli because it makes more sense coming out of Zwingli's theology than Luther's. But Luther will encounter it here. Um, And then secondly, he says, the disputes with Karlstadt and with the prophets of Zwickau were Luther's first experience of the false brothers meaning people who are claiming to be influenced by Luther or bearing Luther's mantle, but they're going to go different places theologically. They think they are carrying out logically where Luther's Reformation should go and that Luther's not doing enough. Um, Luther obviously thinks uh, they've gone too far. And here I think it's really interesting to note um, What's going to happen in these early stages just vastly changes um, what it means to be a Christian, and specifically, um, what it means to be a Lutheran in the world. Um, Luther, when he returns and he's going to preach his Invocavac sermons, is basically going to be asserting, um, whether directly or indirectly, that the Christian faith can be lived out, um, preached, believed um, in a variety of social, economic, um, political systems. It doesn't necessarily necessitate cultural, social, or political um, reform or revolution. Uh, the radical reformers are going to go another way with that. And even in, in Switzerland, um, Zürich um, and Zwingli are going to Right, there's going to be a melding of church and state in this conception of a Christian republic that just won't happen um, in Germany. And so uh, this will be kind of a breaking point for uh, something that will set Lutheranism apart. Uh, even Calvin in Geneva is going to have this kind of Christian state melding uh, in a way that Luther will not. Um, and so this is maybe the beginning of what will be called by Charles Porterfield-Krauth um, the conservative reformation, um, that Luther's not going to advocate um, political, social, cultural, economic upheaval or um, revolution or even serious reform um, because of religious reform. Uh, just a little bit about Zwickau, and then, Mike, I'll let you interject with anything you might have. Um, Brecht is kind of helpful for background on the city. And if I can just read a paragraph, I'll try. I always hate reading on the podcast because then if I listen to it again, I think I sound bad at reading. But so bear (laughs) with me. But uh, uh, he says, Vickau, which had more than 7,000 inhabitants and lay in the southern part of the electorate. So it's in Luther's territory. Electoral Saxony was a pearl among the Saxon cities. Noted for its trade, principally, its cloth industry. So this is kind of like the beginnings of capitalism, beginnings of industry. And so you're going to have with that social and economic concerns going as well. He said the city had eight churches and an important school. Political power was in the hands of a rich upper class. About half the citizens paid no taxes and were considered poor. Social unrest broke out again and again among the so-called Tuknopin, the journeyman clothiers. Even before the Reformation, a strong criticism of the church was evident here. And so I think it's interesting to me, um, rather fascinating even, that um, the Zvikal prophets are going to come out of a city that has cultural, political, social, economic tension already. And when we get to discuss Karlstadt, we're going to see that in play too because he's going to put on layman's clothes and call himself Brother Andy, and he's going to say that he should be working his hands instead of getting money from the church, um, and that Münster is celebrated by uh, the East German government. You know, it's interesting to see how things align here, that Münster's going to lead a peasant's revolt, um, you know, th- this idea of these people who are economically and socially oppressed. Um Luther so far has uh, not made appeals um, to these divisions or tensions, although he certainly at times been aware of them and spoken to them. Uh, But this is going to be something very different then. Um, And also to understand, Luther's Reformation is largely then going to be something that's going to come out of state support and kind of the educated or burger-type Class, right? Townspeople, cities people type class um, That will be helpful for keeping in mind And I really think that could be an episode one day too To show how they, these reformations then take on the characteristics of their settings Beyond just the religious But there's Wickow prophets are three men um, To me the most interesting and probably important is Nicholas Stork or Storch He's a weaver, um, so working class Thomas Drexel, who was a blacksmith, um, and then Marcus Tomai, who's called Stubner, um, who had actually studied in Wittenberg, um, but they all had a connection to Mincer. Mincer had actually, for um, a short span of time, from August 1520 to eight, eight, uh, April 1521, um, preached at the uh, parish church of St. Catherine in Zwickau. And uh, and interestingly, Stork... Um, who is uh, kind of the, I would say, the, the leading Zwickau prophet, never seems to have really bought into like Mincer's call for social, political, economic change. But they share this interest in immediate revelation as opposed to um, mediated revelation. And so maybe before I go more into the Zwickau prophets, Mike, maybe you can unpack just a little bit um, as Luther's going to now start encountering this, and we'll have Schwenkfeld later and others who are going to stress the importance of immediate revelation. And American Christianity has those still today who will stress that. Um, maybe like the fork in the road where Lutheranism is going to fall on this and why this is such a pressing issue.
0: Yeah, you know, so just immediate would be, uh, you know, right now, even it's related to the word immediately, but What we read is no medium, no something in the middle. And so um, the Holy Spirit coming directly to a person who then says, this is the revelation. I've gotten a message from God or whatever, and this is the way we should go rather than being mediated in any way, whether it be, uh, you know, the the scriptures or to maybe put that even broader uh, through the church. You know, and so you can see where Luther's really at a lot of crossroads here. One is, um, if the church is so bad and corrupt, and we only and we don't need the pope to interpret everything, well, then why do we need the church at all, right? And then, but going too far the other direction would be, um, it's just me and my Bible, and I get to interpret it whatever I however I want. The next step would even be worse, which is God speaks to me, and and you're going to. you're going to see that with, with Munster quite a bit, right? So he's the one who sets up his own little kind of utopia. Is that right? He, I then, mean, yeah. that's what he's striving yeah. to do with the, especially.
1: Then, I mean, he sees the Peasants' Revolt as, as yeah. part of that.
0: And, and, you know, just ironically, he gets kind of some benefits from this, right? You know, I mean, that's the problems with all of these. With, with many radical kind of uh, uh, movements that have a <coughs> spiritual aspect to it, the leaders tend to fill the role of tyrant, Right. And that can be very difficult. But there's there's other crossroads, I think, here as well, where uh, Luther's got to go one way or the other. And how is he going to deal with this? And and like you mentioned that the idea of just how much does he pull from the from the lower classes or even that that, the, the sense of a German pride? Right. We've already seen him flirt, but not really like necessarily the knights, right? Who, who could stir up problems if they wanted to. Certainly this is on the mind of the, of the wealthy leaders. That's the last thing they want is a rebellion from the peasants, right? And it, it's going to come, right? We're going to talk about the peasants revolt in a little bit and, and how Luther dealt with that. And probably, you know, uh, he's in a tough spot there, but we'll probably, I think we both will be Honest in our criticism of of what he said. And so uh, he is, he's still going to hold on to a a theological, God put these people ahead of me, right? These are the authorities that I'm supposed to obey to a limit, but I'm supposed to obey. And so he does, he does not like rebellion. He is much more English than French when it comes to the French revolution, if you know that kind of history. Um, But he is a theological, reason for that. And I I think something else to understand too is at this time you have um, many Spanish Catholics, and I'm thinking of Queen Isabella and stuff like that around this era, uh, before this era actually, who do see reform needed in the church. You do see these radical reformers who do see the need for reform in both church and society. But both of them are going to come from um, a law perspective. We need to change the behavior. And Luther's going to come from a gospel perspective and a more theological perspective. So uh, Catholic reform, uh, attempts at Catholic reform are going to be political. They're going to be, cultural is not the right word, but um, dealing with uh, the the behavior of monks and nuns, the behavior of people. Um, and it's not really a theological issue. And I wonder if the radical reformers fall into a similar trap. Certainly it's theological and they're, they're much more theologically minded because it, it grows out of this reformation as opposed to Catholic reformed before the Lutheran reformation, but it's still kind of law-based and it's still kind of like we can fix the behavior of people and of the state and of the culture for the better if we just do. You fill in the blank there, and I, I just wonder if what really drives Luther is theology, word of God, and ultimately the gospel. And he's and and he's not. He's not so high on the idea, ironically, that princes can handle can can do something theologically, right? And so on one hand, you're like, oh, he just, you know, he's just under, he sees the authority of the princes or whoever as legitimately divine. Um, At the same time, he's very suspect of that left-handed kingdom being able to do anything theologically, where the radical reformers at one hand break away from the left-hand kingdom but still put hope in the left-hand kingdom namely their own kind of left-handed kingdom to get stuff done and i think ultimately on both sides uh going back to the pre -pre pre-reformation uh attempts at catholic reform and the radical reformers it really is a mixture of law and gospel on a certain level
1: yeah and i think we see flip sides of the papacy and um Radical reform, and even much of American Protestantism today in a lot of ways. Um, basically, Catholicism wants one pope, and um, the Baptist Church wants millions. Uh, you know, the pope is the authoritative interpreter of Scripture, or me and my Bible, as Mike mentioned. Um, and that was a
0: criticism of the Roman Catholic Church against the, the Lutherans. And and I could just see these Catholics in this mess and go, Luther, look what you did. We knew this was going to happen. This is exactly what we said was going to happen, yeah.
1: And then the same is true. Um, various sides end up in the end of the day wanting a Christendom, um, you know, a uh, kind of a Christian kingdom. As, as Mike n- noted, it's just how they envision it or or picture it. And so, an interesting thing at play here. Before I get back to the Zwickau prophets in specific, and here, understand we're talking Anabaptism, Radical Reform in general, in a lot of ways. So I don't want to, um, I I don't want everything we're saying to be. Um, that you take away that this is what the Zwickau Prophets held. <clears throat> but um, a lot of this goes back to a lot of what the, the Radical Reformers will latch on to is two teachings that come out very early in Luther, which will be Sola Scriptura and the universal priesthood. And uh, it's hardly something that's gone away that people will take, for instance, Sola Scriptura to mean, well, everyone in their Bible will be just fine, um, which diminishes any sort of teaching authority in the church. Or really... Um, seen any benefit in creeds or confessions or the historic teaching of the church. And that can always lead to a, a rudderless, a moreless, an anchorless Christianity and can be um, a danger. And I we see that in the proliferation of denominations. Uh, I mean, open up your phone book if you still have a phone book, I guess. Otherwise, Google in your area churches and you, you'll see a number of denominations. But then the universal priesthood being taken to be synonymous with a universal ministry, which is something that can still happen today too. Well, if we're all priests, then we all must be ministers. Or even this desire to um, multiply the the numbers of ministries or ministers in the church to where, you know, the janitor can become custodial ministry or or something like
0: this. Vocation gets hurt in that.
1: Right. We hurt vocation. And we also misunderstand what the universal priesthood was actually about. But the Zwickau prophets especially are going to latch onto this notion of universal priesthood. And so you have a weaver and a blacksmith who see no reason why they can't teach the scriptures or teach for God as authoritatively as a doctor of theology like Martin Luther. Now, an interesting thing about Luther's approach to this is going to be, and it's going to be one that he'll take throughout most of his life. He won't always follow it perfectly, but I think it is to his credit, especially the times, as Mike said, um, in which he's living, which are up in the air, is persuasion, not coercion. So he's going to meet with some of the Zwickau prophets later. He will have discussions with them. Now, he's blunt. He, he says, I think you're of the devil um, <laughs> and in what you're doing here. But uh, Melanchthon is very much perplexed by this. And uh, some of the things that the Zwickau prophets were known for was um, this belief in immediate revelation or direct revelation, we might call it that God's going to give them visions or messages for people. They're going to make predictions about the future. Um, But also an emphasis on conventicles, which is small groups gathering to discuss religion, maybe to discuss the Bible. I'm not saying every small group Bible study is bad. Um, I do think there are dangers to it that we don't always appreciate. Um, I had a relative one time who was for a while going to a Vineyard Church and I remember at a family gathering my mom kind of gave me a dirty look to get, to get like okay wait don't, <laughs> don't go nuts on this but she was just raving about her church and how they have small group Bible study all the time and they just take out a passage of scripture and they, they kick it around and I said oh I bet you kick the life out of it <clears throat> you know you stomp it um, what conventicles were at this point especially was to, to kind of do church without church right? And it's, uh, it demonstrated then a lack of appreciation for teaching authority in the church. While we confess scripture alone, or the importance of um, the Bible for the scripture alone forms doctrine, we don't confess scripture alone in that we read the scriptures alone. Um, we do that with the church. You see that already in the New Testament again and again. I mean, the Bereans as a congregation search the scriptures. Um, and this it will be important. Um, Luther always sees the imp- Luther was an academic theologian who also was a pastor and preacher. He always saw the need for recognizing teaching authority in the church, for educating people in the scriptures, for having trained theologians, for respecting the doctors of the church and taking the best that we could take from them, although not necessarily taking everything, mm-hmm. um, as he would say, even he could err. Um, and so I think this is an important early touchstone, um, we see Melanchthon really struggle with how to respond. And I don't think that's a personal fault in Melanchthon. I think Melanchthon sees, hey, these guys are taking some themes from this Wittenberg movement that we've had had going here. Um, and, and so I think it will really make Luther think through um, what is the role of teaching authority in the church um, what does sola scriptura mean? What does the universal priesthood mean? Um, and it will also make Luther really think through his view of infant baptism because this is going to be the first time he's going to really come up against um, people saying we shouldn't baptize infants. And he's going to have to really articulate, which you'll see him do in the catechisms, uh, why it is that we will will baptize infants. Um, these three prophets, I mean, to their credit, seem to have been sincere uh, at least at this point that they have contact with Wittenberg, they don't seem to have any uh, clear personal agenda. Um, there's not, like will happen in some of the groups, you know, like sexual abuse or um, some campaign for for personal gain. Um, but we see now already in 1521, just in the little time Luther's at the Wartburg, um, but elsewhere in Saxony, so outside of Wittenberg's clear sphere of control, um, Luther's ideas latching on and people starting to uh, to run with them. And so Luther's going to, in connection with this and also with Karlstadt, and I think Karlstadt deserves an episode partly too because Luther uh, was just terribly unfair with Karlstadt in many ways, uh, and I don't mean that to be a big um, diss on Luther, um, but he lumps Karlstadt together with Minzer, with all the Schwermers, with all the Anabaptists, and Karl started again and again Is like, dude, like, yes, I disagree with you on some stuff, but like, mm-hmm. I opposed Mincer. I'm not for violent rebellion. Um, and I don't know that he always gets the hearing that maybe sometimes Luther with his friends, when he thought his friends had turned on him, which in his mind at that time meant turning on the scriptures or on God theologically, could be very harsh with them. We'll see that later with Agricola where Luther takes the right position in the antinomian disputations and that. But he's really kind of unfair to Agricola. A he sets him up to embarrass him, in fact. And um, and so Carl Starr should kind of get his own episode for that. But um, Luther's going to coin a term that becomes very important in Luther theology. In English, we say enthusiasm. Sometimes it's translated as fanaticism, but I don't like that because in modern English, fanatic has all kinds of connotations that maybe don't belong in this. And it has such a wide use. You can be a sports fanatic, which is good. You can be a religious fanatic which bad. is bad. That's usually like a terrorist. Um, but an enthusiast, the German there, is to be a schwermer. And we, uh, we had a professor who Mike and I, um, you know, I think both would say was one of the better professors we've had, um, who would describe schwermerai as like being like bees buzzing around your head, right? <coughs> like you're getting um, these direct messages, right? You're feeling your way. Uh, there's an emotionalism to it. Uh, there's a a big stress on the senses. Um, and the uh, Schvermerei will be why Lutheranism on the whole historically has been really skeptic skeptical of when things become too emotive, whether that be doctrine, the worship service, anything like that, um, a recognition of the danger of an overemphasis on individual experience, um, on... Uh, kind of a, a Christianity unencumbered by the doctrinal. Um, and, uh, and and this is something, too, that we see in America. I mean, the, the Anabaptists kind of won America, mm-hmm. at least American Protestantism, in a lot of ways, um, partly through the Reformed, because the Reformed shared some influences, too. Uh, but, I mean, how many Christian churches aren't enthusiastic then um, in their approach to things, right? You go in the worship services and appeal to your emotions. Um, the message baby is filled with, I feel and it seems to me and my experiences and here's my testimony. Uh, and it it becomes then less Christocentric and um, less word-based in, in that it's teaching-based. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, uh, and we see this in music, you know, you go from Luther's or Lutheranism's grand catechetical hymns, um, to hymns that largely become about how I feel, or there's water and a sky. Um, you know, I hate to, I'll always turn someone off, but like, uh, we had how great thou art in chapel the other day, and um, Leninger and Mike were giving me a hard time because I, I left for the final hymn because I've just I've sung that one enough in my life, and um. I didn't like protest. I was sitting in the back. I snuck out. I didn't, no one noticed, um, except I just I turned to to Paul and said, "I've I've sung this one enough in my life," and there's like one verse in there that references Jesus, and mm-hmm. that's okay, right? But otherwise, it's like mountains and what, mm-hmm. and uh, it makes you want to sway. And I'll admit, it's a personal hangup of mine that I'm usually. Nervous about anything that makes me want to sway. Maybe it's because like my minor field dealt a lot with like fascism and totalitarianism. But uh, but I think the Zwickel prophets are important because it's going to be this. And Luther will use terms like rotten, the the mass, the crowd, where the individual gets caught up in other individuals, and we can lose ourselves in that too. It um, and there's like a, a riotous connotation to that. And I think um, it's something that's timely for our own day too. Because enthusiasm is built into us. Luther in the small called articles says basically Adam and Eve were enthusiasts. Mm-hmm. Um, that's why they fell because right, this serpent says that God really say and then Adam and Eve go with their feelings, with their gut, and, uh, and therefore err. And so um, we've, we've talked a lot about Luther being an occasional theologian in that he's driven by the occasions, the things he encounters. And so I think this is an important experience for him. And that he sees it come out of his own family, so to speak, theologically. Um, But then he also starts to see where people can go with his teaching and his preaching um, and his writing if it's not firmly grounded. Um, And then I think thirdly that he begins to realize that there's people who think um, his reform ought not be primarily theological and ecclesiastical um, but that um, inherent in the gospel or in the scriptures is this drive for social, cultural, economic change. And we would be, I think, um, very remiss if we thought that has ever gone away. Um, Even today we largely encounter and experience Christianity Within our political, economic, cultural, social settings, and it's good to be able to step back and sometimes say, to what extent has that um, influenced my my Christianity, and to what extent has it maybe colored it, infected it. But I'll I'll leave off with that. Largely, I don't think I don't want to get too much into Karlstadt, and I think I had one more thing marked in here, but I I took my bookmark out, and so that. that does know. I took both bookmarks off, um, But I guess anything else you have, Mike, on that?
0: Yeah, you're going to see some seeds being planted here or let's say something that's uh, been been latent that's going to start to come out. Um, you know, when I think of w- what we're describing here largely as pietism, um, the seeds of pietism here. Uh, and when you think pietism, you should think of <coughs> subjectivity over objectivity. Although, as you rightly put out, sometimes you can lose the sub, the subject in that uh, right in the
1: internal over the external yeah.
0: and so like that well oh, here's here's the mass that everybody's everybody's making their decision for for this cause uh this <laughs> spiritual movement or whatever and you got to get taken by that and actually ironically and even, even we, that
1: word you just used Mike sorry um spiritual yeah. right that that love for that word even in our own day <laughs> and spiritual is not a bad word but it sure gets abused.
0: Right. And the irony of it all is that you can, you know, you, you look back and you go, that was just something that was there floating in space or my heart or something and it wasn't really grounded in and and so you as a subject can get lost in these kind of movements too and I like what you said external versus internal you know I would say physical and spiritual not really uh, it's the spiritual over the physical it's the internal over the external it's the subject over the object those kinds of things that you're going to get that are going to be played out and it really is the default religion of America for better or worse. Um, I think a lot times worse. Um, you know, you talked about hymnody, the great, the Lutheran corrals, and then, um, you, you really start getting into, we're just going to sing about the, uh, you know, the sunset in the meadows. Um, there's a sweet spot there, Paul Gerhardt, right? Where right. it's not just hard. And yeah, I'll be fair. Yeah. I am
1: a huge Gerhardt yeah. fan, but you will have a hard time finding Gerhardt, um, him that does not have a lot of eyes in it. Yeah. But I think he navigates in between right. that well.
0: And so I when I teach worship I say look down on the dates and you can figure out if you're in the if you're towards the pietist side, the Lutheran more catechetical side, or if you're in that sweet spot. And that and Paul Gerhardt's that sweet spot where it's not just a cold hearted, dead orthodoxy kind of thing. This is emotional, whatever, but it's grounded in the reality of Jesus Christ, the objectivity of Jesus Christ and not let's sit around and talk about um, you know how I feel about this passage, or what it means to me, as beneficial as that can be. But you can totally understand the church is corrupt, um, the 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 government's corrupt. This is corrupt. It kind of sucks we, to be working yeah, class. We gotta change this, and you can see that today something's not working in our society. Or look at that church; it's dying. Something's not working. And if we just had this, and I, I we're always. I, I think this was Jonathan Fisk who had said this that. Um, it's always if we just had this, then everything would be solved. And I think he had three categories. If we just had the right leader, if we just had the right worship, and I can't remember what the last category was, but if we just had this and root out the problems, then we would have this church utopia here on earth or a secular cultural utopia or whatever. And I think Luther very much understands sin. Yeah very much understands gospel and the two kingdoms, and he can be seen as a little bit reluctant. Maybe he should have said more about this or that. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. It's just one man. Um, But if you understand his theology behind this, I think you kind of understand where he can say this is going too far. This is why he had a quote-unquote conservative reformation, Um, uh, because it's a theological issue for him. It's not a political one.
1: And I think... uh Luther recognizes, I mean, people just are inherently religious creatures. You can change the religion, but the impulse is there. Um, read Dave all Seculosity. He's really good on that if you want. Um, but maybe just one thing you could hit on at the end. I've heard you use it before, and then you used it. Um, Mike is very famous now. He presented at our uh, seminary symposium recently. <laughs> and in your presentation there, I don't know if it was in the paper, but you you hit on it again in the presentation again of what, what really Lutheran, Lutheranism will advocate for is proper emotional responses to appropriate things. And you use an illustration in there of a kid who sneaks in when his parents are watching TV. Mm-hmm. But maybe lest we give the impression, because we want to avoid that, that, that we should be unemotional as Christians. I have seldom, I will say, presided over a service where I haven't seen someone in tears. Mm-hmm. Um, but that the emotion ought to be connected to the proper thing. Maybe you can just use that illu- the illustration you used at the symposium um, as we kind of close this out for for where that sweet spot or what we, what the concern. Sure,
0: is. sure. You know, so it was an apologetic uh, type context where i will trying to make the case instead of just being about like science and philosophy that kind of apologetics. But there's there's a whole other realm out there that you know uh, art and literature and stuff. And I was trying to make the point that beauty is objective, so I made my argument that beauty was objective and it's tied to morality and that's actually not exclusive it's inclusivity at its best because we see beauty judged not by own of subjective by, but by an objective thing by God and we can see beauty in a lot di- many different places, and then I transitioned to say, I think even our emotions should be at least judged objective or they are objective, and kind of get in the way from I, I the, that real turned in curved inward. This is how I feel. You better deal with it kind of thing. And I use the example of a, let's say I have a four year old son and I tuck him into his race car bed and say, you know, Jesus loves you and uh, say my nighttime prayers. And then I go out and I watch, start a movie with my wife, a violent R rated movie. And at uh, a particular violent scene. Usually when I do this, not for a classy place like WLS, I, I um, our seminary I'm like you know so someone's like got a hatchet and like hacking somebody away and I look up and then around the corner in the hallway I see my four year old son has been watching this and so I jump up turn off the TV jump off and I'm like this kid's gonna have nightmares for weeks when we have to take him to a psychologist oh my goodness and but before I can get there he points at the television and with a sinister sneer laughs ha 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 now I know I have to take him to a psychologist is uh. the, the punchline there but it's the wrong emotion for the wrong situation we can't always rely on our emotions to have the right kind of thing so um and sometimes we manipulate our own emotions to for a a a different a, a different result for instance how many times do we go to a funeral and we insist that this is going to be a celebration of life. And so I'm going to put down all of my grief and my anger and my mourning. Other cultures mourn. We can learn something from that. They wail out loud at funerals. I'm going to put that down because I don't want to, whatever it is, I don't want to see, feel weak. I don't want to feel sad. I don't want to whatever. Um, and we lose something there. And, and, and that being contrasted with 1 Corinthians 15 where St. Paul says, where oh death is your victory, he, he is like, screw you death, right. right? That's an emotional response. And if you've ever gotten up the pulpit, uh, you pastors at a sermon and had that kind of attitude, screw you death, and you can preach that way. Um, that's when there are some of the rawest emotions that come out, but it's the right emotion for the right situation. And uh, when we are singing hymns to make ourselves feel better, when deep inside we're crying out for hope and we are angry at God, um, we, I, I think maybe a better way to describe it is we don't allow for a wide variety of emotions. In our, and I think exactly what you said about if you're so subjective over the objective, the subject gets lost in the masses. And so here's what you should sing in Christian church, happy, clappy, whatever. And then you you lose your your the subject is lost because you go along with the masses. I'm supposed to be this happy Christian kind of thing. And then you thing. maybe
1: lose the joy which, at the funeral, ought to be found in the, the message of the resurrection.
0: Right. And so you place your mo- I, another way to think about this is we put, we put our drama in the wrong places and our and our lightheartedness in the wrong places. So the the old adage was Americans, um, worship their work. Um, work at their play and play at their worship, right? Uh, Many of you have heard that before. We put our drama in the wrong place. Um, Our drama should be in the drama that is Christ dying for me and then coming in his body and blood. What in the mo- heaven and earth are crashing together on Sunday morning. I, a poor, miserable sinner should be vaporized. And here I am in this emotional thing where God is coming down on me, not with a fist, but with a, with a thumb that goes across my, uh, my cheek to wipe away my tear. That's emotional. It's, it's the right kind of emotion kind of thing. And, and so I think you're onto something there too, that uh, it's, It's dangerous because even if it's not purposely being manipulated, um, there's a subtle manipulation there. You better have this kind of emotion in order to be the right Christian. And I think that's dangerous.
1: And I think, you know, when emotion becomes guide instead of response, um, we maybe underestimate the extent to which others and even we ourselves manipulate our own emotions. You don't have to study history Um, too long to see how easily emotions have been manipulated and you don't even have to examine your own life too long to to notice how many times you've manipulated your own emotions but also how many times others have manipulated yours too and so what Luther's going to recognize with shvermerei or enthusiasm is the danger of introducing emotion into um, maybe epistemology or how we determine truth um, and how we, the lens through which we see God, and strive to interact with Him, uh, He is not undermining. Luther was a very emotional person. Sure. Um, he he wants to see us moved by God's justifying Word and the absolution, and this is where the move to, from the internal to the internal, from the external, becomes especially dangerous too, because God has given us ex- external signs external things to reassure us of his love bread and wine and water and, and things of this sort music um, but they they are they're grounded and uh, and when we lose that grounding um, dangerous things can happen And so I think you hit on that well Mike I it's not a dismissal of emotion
0: not at all no. It's
1: not a dismissal of the crowd or of the individual even but it's a need. Sola scriptura means, We are to be grounded in the Scripture. It's not the Scriptures as a tool to help us unground ourselves um, for something more. And um, we see with the Zvikal prophets and we'll see with others that whether they realized it or not, it kind of becomes that because the Scriptures become, see, I'm going to use the Scriptures to show now we can move on to immediate revelation or social and cultural change you know, for Minster, that what God's really getting at is this new kingdom we need to set up. And that is where the danger comes. Um, Could Luther probably be faulted for maybe helping to uphold what were problematic political, social, economic systems? In some cases, I would probably say yes. Um, But he did not see that as his primary vocation as doctor of theology. And I would argue that we are much better off for him not having seen it as such.
0: Yeah, I just imagine if Luther takes over some of the political uh, things and um, you don't want him to be prince. Right. You do not want him in charge of a nope, You do not want <laughs> that kind of man doing uh, that. And that's, that's that's, of course, always the danger we still see today in all sorts of religions, but also Christianity. So we've gone pretty far here. I like this one, Michael. Yeah, this might be one good. of my favorite sessions. And I think we're going to come back to these themes again, of course, yeah. with Karl Stott and then the Peasants' Revolt. So uh, we will be able to develop things a little bit uh, uh, more in depth if, if we so choose. But we're free because you want to know what? Because Jesus rose from the dead, died on the cross, and we are free to let the bird fly. Every evening when the sun goes down, I get my body and I begin to cry. I don't care what the people are thinking I'm not drunk I'm just a dink I'll set him up another round I'll set him up another round I'll set him up another round One more round won't get me down